podcasting to you from Ontario, Canada, the home of hockey and sweet Canadian maple syrup. This is Unmasking COVID-19. The purpose of this podcast is to talk about personal stories during this pandemic. Our names are Ovia, Serena, Victoria, and Wen. And we are your hosts. We are so happy that you're here. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the third episode of the second season of Unmasking COVID-19. My name is Wen. Serena. And we are your hosts for this episode. Today with us, we have Danielle. Danielle Solo is a poet, storyteller, and freelancer currently based in London, Ontario. Her work focuses on spirituality and traumatic experiences, uncovering the hauntings that result from these events. She's a firm believer that you should write while the wounds are still fresh, if not poke them a little. Most recently, her poetry has been featured in Pantheon Project's Intermissions, works for a post-pandemic world and mineral lit mag. She is here to talk to us about her experience through the pandemic. So welcome, Danielle. Would you like to quickly introduce yourself? Sure. Um, All around, just a very bookish, kind of all over the place individual. (laughs) I like to call myself a mess. My partner always jokes that I'm a hot mess and then I say, I'll never tell you what that means. Um, (laughs) If that helps sum it up, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. You're very, you have a lot of interests and I think that's really cool. So I guess to start off, um, what has your experience been like through quarantine and the pandemic in general? So I'm one of those people where I'm a chronically ill individual. So I'm very high risk for both getting COVID and, you know, dying of COVID or the complications from COVID. So I went into lockdown basically early March. So a couple of weeks before anybody else considered doing that. And it was weird to get used to at first. Like I'm an introvert. I'm a homebody. So being at home is not something that's super uncomfortable for me but I definitely wasn't prepared for the level of isolation. I think that came along with just being at home, locked inside, unable to leave. Um, Cause I think a lot of people, at least within my circle withdrew from, you know, everybody else. So like we see each other on social media, but no one's really posting much because everything that's going on is really stressful. Um, at first, you know, it was COVID and the death tolls, and then you have the Black Lives Matter issue, and like, um, even like discussions of like how capitalism is really um, disproportionately affecting like disabled individuals or just the poorer populations. Like, even just being on um, online discourse has become super, super stressful. So I find everybody's kind of locking themselves both within those like four walls that they have at home and not really venturing out even on the digital sphere. So it's kind of just been me and my pets, which it was just fine. Like my pets are lovely, but (laughs) you can't really do all that much with them once you get used to being inside for six months. Um, So what happened to me Uh, ironically is I stopped kind of focusing on what was going on in the world currently and I ended up kind of focusing more on like trauma and uh, different things that I had pushed to the back of my mind for a very long time so instead of like 
living in, let's say, April 2020. It's like I'm living back in 2016 or 2012 with all this like childhood trauma that I hadn't been able to process for a very long time. Um, so I don't want to be like, oh, it's been a couple of months from hell, but it's kind of like been like reliving a large part of my past that I thought I had locked up and like would never access again, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, times can definitely be challenging. And um, so, you know, how uh, you have a lot of different interests and you really use your different platforms to really speak out about different experiences. And that's really great. Uh, could you elaborate more on what types of works you've featured in, for example, the Pantheon Project and Renault Lit Meg? Yeah, yeah, of course. So a lot of my poetry is my way of processing and coming to terms with my trauma. Um, like I mentioned, a lot of my trauma happened when I was very, very young. So I didn't get a chance to handle it properly. Uh, when something happens to you at a very young age, whether it's like, you know, verbal abuse or physical abuse, you kind of tend to kick into survival as gear. So you don't um, you don't kind of think about what's happening. You just kind of get ready to keep experiencing a experiencing it until it's over. Um, so that was very much my upbringing until I moved out um, of my childhood home and kind of started living on my own and experiencing life as an individual rather than as part of like this toxic family unit. Um, so what I, I mostly write poetry and um, like creative nonfiction essays just because like for me it's my way of delving into what has happened to me but also being able to communicate my experiences of healing but also just showcasing that it's not pretty and realistically like it's if something is large enough to affect you it's going to affect you for years down the road so it's my way of being able to live with it but also communicating that there's a way of getting not necessarily beyond it but being able to live with it in a way that's not letting it live through you it's more you living with it kind of tagging along. Um, so I've written like poetry pieces, for example, that are just kind of like snapshots of like moments of a flashback or um, like just the way that like my current domestic life will kind of transition into a really traumatic childhood moment at like the drop of a hat for no reason, well, for what seems like no reason, but it's like a small trigger that most people wouldn't find very significant or noticeable at all. Um, and I've also written essays that have kind of been, you know, me just mediating on um, like the way that certain memories of traumas have like adapted over time. So I remember there was one project I had to do for a writing class a while ago, like it was a year ago, I think. Um, and what I did was I went through like all of my old diaries. I went through all my old text messages with like friends from high school that I was very close with. Um, just an, an old writing pieces and stuff like that. And it was interesting to see like how memories of trauma change over time. Like that was kind of, um, it was like, it was an essay, but it was like also like a little bit different from the traditional form because it would like re-explore this same moment in time, but through, um, through like different sources of remembering it so you would see that like for example you know you could remember like being pushed up against a wall a certain way but then after five years if you're in a safer context you remember either more or like the details change a little bit 
And that essay for one was very significant for me because you kind of, when you look back and you see how like the memory has shifted, you begin questioning like uh, the reality of what actually happened and what was true and what wasn't. So it kind of, that was like the pivotal moment for me where I realized like I need to be able to write down my experiences both as they happen, but also as I recover, because otherwise I have no idea um, how to track what, you know, feels like it's real and what isn't or how that changes over time. Well, that, that is very powerful indeed. Um, a lot of these experience of trauma or experiences that you've had in the past, really you don't, a lot of your memories can become fragmented in some areas and it can be hard to recollect things or perhaps in some cases you, you want to block some memories out because of experiences and trauma. And um, this is also a very hard, difficult conversation to have with a lot of different people. So it's very good that you are able to find an outlet like poetry and like your essay writing to really express how you feel and express these experiences that you've had. Now, a lot of these challenges, again, for a lot of people who've experienced trauma, whether it's in the past or uh, like in the very uh, distant past or it's not so long ago, how can you perhaps encourage people to really talk about their experiences in, you know, so that they can learn to perhaps overcome them or like you said, to learn to live with them? That's one thing that's really, really difficult to get a handle on, um, especially as you get more distant from an event. Like the longer it's been, I find it's like harder to talk about. Um, because you're, you're digging further into a wound that you thought was closed. Um, one thing that I found to be especially significant, and I know everybody says this, but it's, it's true, and that's why they beat this point into the mud. Um, you really need to have a supportive community. Like for me personally, growing up in a toxic household, I had no one to talk to until I was in about the 11th grade. Like that's when I was like first having friends that I could like leave the house with. And kind of um, like I would be able to go over to their houses, for example, and like um, just see their family units acting in a completely different context. And it made you it made me realize that something was wrong with mine. Um, but without, you know, having friends that are able to develop deep bonds and be understanding and patient and, you know, kind of be willing to provide that safe space for you you're not going to be able to talk about it because like to this day, right? I mean, I've grown a lot in the past six years, but I'm still not going to introduce myself to like someone on the street and be like, oh, and by the way, like this is what my mom did to me as a kid. Um, it's kind of a little bit easier, I find, through art because people aren't necessarily looking you in the face. They're just looking, you, looking at you as like the text that's in front of them and the name. Um, so it's kind of, it takes away from the confrontational aspect of that. Um, so like that can be really useful if you're not sure if you have anyone that you can talk to in person. Um, but if you have people that you feel like you can trust with anything, definitely just tread the waters a little bit. Like don't necessarily, you know, hit them with the hardest thing that happened to you, but try giving them like smaller pieces of information when you're comfortable. Um, because again, if you're not comfortable, it's not going to, it's not going to go well, <laughs> realistically. You have to be able to feel safe. And if you don't have friends 
or partners or family members that you feel safe discussing this stuff with, therapy is definitely uh, an essential option. I think it's needed to be entirely honest. Like it's something that I avoided for a very long time until my mental health started crushing me. And then I was kind of forced into it. It was like I had a semester, I had like a rough semester where I had like two uh, essays that were just overdue. And realistically, I'm like, I'm not going to be able to get this done before the exam and I need the accommodation. So I guess I'll take the therapy option because that was my way of like, I can get the accommodation option because I know something's wrong. I just don't want to admit it. Um, But once I did that, I ended up being very lucky in finding a therapist I was comfortable with right off the bat, which is really, really rare. Um, But having a therapist to talk to has allowed me to explore what's happened in more detail and more depth. And it's allowed me to be both more honest with myself, but also with the people that I surround myself with and has facilitated both the creative aspect of my healing, but also having those discussions with people that I feel safe with. So I guess if you take one thing away from all of that, go to therapy. (laughs) Um, But yeah, just don't put yourself in an uncomfortable position as well because you can't healing is not something that you can force it takes a lot of time it takes a lot of work but it's worth it it's lifelong but it's worth it um i completely agree with you i think therapy is extremely important um i think it was around two years ago now no actually a year ago or a year and a half ago um i was going through some rough patch my life and I, I also uh, went into counseling and therapy and I saw a huge difference it was I found someone I can talk to and open up with um so I completely agree with the importance of therapy however there is this sort of stigma around therapy and counseling so I guess how do you think we can go about I guess, removing that stigma around it. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely a person that believes in leading by example, um, only because, like I said, I've mentioned a couple of times that my family was not the best. But growing up, I think I was about, I was in the 10th grade, so I was about 15 when I realized that I was like having something wrong mentally. Like I was suicidal at that point. I didn't realize that that was an issue until like one of my friends told me that she was depressed and I was like, oh, okay, that's a thing. You know, you do research and you find out that way. But like you said, it's not something that's talked about. And my family very much was like, mental health is not a thing. You're making it up. Like my mom, um, there was a period when I was a kid where my mom wanted to go back to school because my dad forced her to like stay home and watch the kids and that kind of thing. And um, when she went back to school, which was like in a very ambitious move on her part, like good for her. But my dad quit his job and sat at home to like basically force her to have to come back because no money was coming in. So we couldn't afford anything. Um, And so my mom just kind of looked at me and she was like, okay, you're like, what now I know is depression, right? She was like, oh, you're sitting around all day. You're not, um, you know, you you don't, you don't want to get out of bed. You're just acting like your father. You're trying to manipulate this position to, to get what you want. And that's not going to work here. And so even when, a couple of months later, I was like, no, I've, I've done some research and something is definitely wrong. And I told her up front, like I got the same response over and over and over again. And it's very disheartening. Um, I think that's again, why I resisted the idea of going to therapy in the first place, because people will either 
treat you differently because of it, or they're going to flat out deny that something's actually wrong, which I don't think is fair because if you're not in the scenario, I don't really think you have a, a right to speak on someone else's experience. But if I hadn't like ended up pulling myself to go to therapy, nothing else would have. Um, so I think it's, it's one of those things where if you know in your gut something is wrong, you have to act on it. Because if you don't, no one's going to push you to do it. And people can, it's like the old expression, people can try to bring a horse to water, but they can't force it to drink. At, at some point, you have to realize that some change needs to happen. And sometimes that change starts with you, whether that's, you know, um, speaking out about going to therapy personally, whether that's, you know, just a very like casual um, admission, like, uh, I've, you know, I've gone to therapy and it's been helpful. Or whether that's, you know, listening to a friend who's going through a panic attack and learning how to help them navigate that. Because sometimes that's really needed as well. Like you need to have allies around you who are able to help take care of you when you can't do it yourself. Um, so I think it's just everybody needs to take on a little bit more responsibility, whether they need to do it as an ally or as an individual who's affected by this directly. Right. That's very important to realize that we are all in this together and sometimes it's very important to look for support where you can um, again there are stigmas around therapy there are stigmas around mental health now and throughout this pandemic we're still going through different changes in how people accept mental health and mental health issues so speaking on that how do you think as a community or society our views on mental health and mental well-being have changed as a result of the pandemic so one thing that i've seen reiterated over and over mostly on twitter because twitter is one of the few platforms i find that tends to be a little bit more political like instagram is great and whatnot but it doesn't really get into the core issues um people are noting that even if they don't want to admit it, this pandemic is affecting everybody on a very deep and very significant level. You can't go through something, um, you know, that literally changes your life, your everyday life situation for especially this long of a period and expect to come out just the same. That's, that's not how anything works. You know, if you meet a new friend, for example, and you're friends with them for six months, there are some changes that are going to happen. If you're locked inside for six months, you can't go to work you know, going to the grocery store even becomes like this um, very meticulous, careful task that you have to do in a very specific way. That's going to change both your outlook and both your, your behavior. And I think it's just a matter of people being willing to be more compassionate with each other, being more considerate towards each other and realizing that everybody's going to have a little bit of work to do when this is done regardless of how well prepared they were or how mentally stable they they want to claim to be this isn't an experience for everybody and i've seen the phrase like we're going through a collective trauma like that's been thrown around a lot and i think that's a very applicable term and i think a lot of people need to be not necessarily more willing to accept it but at least willing to consider it because saying someone needs to accept it is kind of demanding a lot, especially at first. But even just like look at yourself and how your life has changed as a, as a result, like what are, what's different in your own life? When you come in the front door, like if you just threw your keys on the couch and took off your coat and, you know, like started petting the dog, like that's different now. 
you know, you're going to come in and you're going to clean your doorknob off and you're going to put your keys somewhere so they can be cleansed. And then you're going to go wash your hands. Then you're going to make sure like you didn't touch anything else. And if anything else was, you know, touched, you have to clean that too. And if you're wearing gloves, you need to take those off. And like, I don't want to speak on behalf of anyone, but at least I know for me, like it's inhibited a lot of my own like slight OCD tendencies that tend to come through when my anxiety level is heightened and other mental illnesses arise, like my OCD tends to come through a lot more clearly. And so for me, like once this whole pandemic is over, regardless of how well established I look to be, like there's going to be that little, those ticks going on in the background again, that's just going to have set me back a little bit. And even if, you know, I want to try to ignore those behaviors, they're still going to be there. And I think everyone's behaviors are going to change a little bit, even when we go back to quote unquote normal life, it's not going to be the normal that we expect. And we need to be willing to both accommodate that, but be willing to consider that, you know, maybe there are some issues we're going to need to fix, even if that's not an easy admission to make. I think you made some really important points there. Um, One thing that really stood out to me is the fact that this is going to be a collaborative effort to get over this sort of, I guess, um, to rephrase, like a global trauma. So I guess what specific responsibilities do we have as members of a larger society to make sure that we recover from this? I think in general, everybody just has to be willing to be a little bit more patient and a little bit more tolerant towards each other. Um, I know like in Canada and the States, we're very much focused on the individual and we're very focused on, you know, pushing aside anything we think can hold us back. And that includes mental illness and that includes showing vulnerability. And I think we need to restructure that or at least be willing to look at it from a critical lens, because if we're not taking care of our population, no one's going to take care of our population. And that includes both being willing to take care of yourself and, you know, look at, you know, um, what you need. And so you can communicate that with other people, but also be willing to take those steps to provide that for yourself. Um, But also reaching out to people that you know, and that you care about, and making sure that those needs that they have are being taken care of as well. And sometimes that can be, you know, just as simple as like, meeting up with them for coffee and saying, okay, things are kind of getting back to normal. Is there anything I can do that's helpful? Is there anything that you need to talk about? Or is there anything that has changed that you, you need people to be conscious of? It's, it all comes down to being willing to take care of each other and be supportive of each other. And that includes, like, I know we mentioned the stigma of mental illness, but we're going to have to dismantle that at some point. It's not as easy as saying, well, we'll just take it down. But we have to be willing to put into the, put in the work to take care of both ourselves and the people that we care about. Because if you, if you're not taking care of those around you, there's no way that they're going to be able to heal. And if no one is taking care of you, there's no way that you're going to be able to heal and no one can fully take care of themselves on their own. And I know that sounds like a really weird statement to make because there are people that are very, you know, Um, independent and able to handle themselves and like handle day-to-day tasks and big stresses through work. And that's not what I'm talking about. Um, It comes down to like, if you look at um, when they, they basically do force 
like just single person confinement in prisons, like that's considered a form of torture. And that's for, for a very specific reason is we're social beings. So no matter how independent you are, you're going to need to be able to rely on other people at least a little bit. You're going to need to be able to have someone be willing to take the time and attention to look out for you just a little bit. So with that in mind, I think we all need to move forward with that mindset and just be a little bit more compassionate and considerate and willing to take care of the people around us. Yes, definitely. And it's conversations like these where we need to start to listen more. We need to start to listen to what people have to say. We need to start to take responsibility for how we hold ourselves, especially in this time, but always we need to uh, be responsible for how we are not only treating ourselves, but also how we treat others by where we decide to go, uh, how many precautions we decide to take. And at this time, it's very important that we all take these measures into consideration and we follow the guidelines. It's as simple as that right now. That's what our responsibility is. So I think after we've touched on that, I think we want to perhaps go back towards talking about your passion in writing. And we see that you're very passionate about writing. And what role really has writing played in your life during this time in the pandemic? So writing is definitely something that even from a very young age, I used it as a form of escapism, like reading and writing allowed me to escape into different scenarios that were different from my own. And the way that's changed throughout the pandemic is, of course, I've now stopped using writing as like an escape into fiction or a better world and kind of used it to confront the world that I'm facing. And Honestly, my writing during the pandemic has kind of only gotten more personal and more reflective. It's become a way for me to not only handle my own existence, but my own isolation. Um, You know, being in a one bedroom apartment by myself with like, you know, pets you can't really have a conversation with, you're really left with only your own thoughts. And you can only put on so much Netflix or so many uh, albums in the background before you know your mind starts to run and starts to think. Um, I'm a person as well, I have both complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which comes from um, like trauma that's extended over a long period of time. So think years um, and right, like the regular, if you wanna use regular with quotation marks. Um, post-traumatic stress disorder, which comes from like a singular traumatic event that happens like, you know, maybe once, maybe twice, but they're very like definite moments. Um, So being alone with my own thoughts usually ends up having those memories or those events sneak back up. They tend to run in like a circle in my mind. So if I'm not engaged in something, like if I'm not taking notes in a lecture hall, if I'm not um, you know, what, well, it even happens if I'm like washing the dishes or something. If I'm alone with my thoughts for too long, the past creeps up on me, whether I want to avoid it or not. It's not something I can escape. Um, the best way I can describe it is you don't really live in the present. You live mostly in the past and then looking forward to the future when you're quote unquote free. Uh, you're never really free, (laughs) but writing has allowed me to kind of take those thoughts that are always popping back up in my head 
um, that are popping up now to the point of almost insanity where it's, it's driving me up the wall because that's all I'm thinking about because I'm so used to my surroundings. There's nothing new, nothing stimulating that's pushing that to the background. So sitting down with um, pen and paper is allowing me to process that, but also work through it in a way where I'm not just, you know, seeing a sexual assault in the flashback. I'm looking at it and realizing, okay, no matter how guilty I felt over this, there's nothing I could have done to prevent it. I tried to prevent it as best as I could in my mind. And I, and when, you know, when you start seeing it happen over and over and over again, you start analyzing your own behavior and being able to pen that down and look at it as a list rather than an experience that, you know, you're experiencing over and over again, you're going to start looking at it a little bit differently. Like I look at that list the same way I would look at, um, you know, like a list in a newspaper article of another sexual assault victim who basically, or sexual assault survivor, I should say. And usually I find when I look at like a list from someone else's experience, I'm much more, I don't want to say tolerant, but I'm more compassionate where I'm like, okay, you know what? So what if you went out? So what if, you know, you were a kid, you didn't know any better. Like I find it's a lot easier for me to comfort somebody else who's been a victim than it is to comfort myself. And so when I see it just as a list of facts, rather than I'm seeing the event happening in what looks like real time in my mind, uh, I've been able to be more compassionate with myself and be like, okay, we need to take a step back. We need to realize that you need to be as delicate with yourself as you would be with another person. You need to be as compassionate with yourself as you would be with another person. And you need to look at what happened to you not necessarily as something that is your fault. You need to be willing to look at it with those critical eyes and see what you can take out, what needs to change in current time, in current society, rather than what you needed to change in the past. Because in reality, I didn't need to change any of my behaviors in the past that led to my trauma because, you know, I was so young or I was so unexperienced that I didn't know any better. And I can't, like, being able to write it out and to think about it you realize you can't blame yourself anymore. And it's, it's definitely, it sounds weird, but like being stuck in a pandemic, being stuck inside, being forced to go through those thoughts and put them down so they'll shut up in my brain has actually helped me to start moving past issues that even through two, three years of therapy, I'm still stuck on. Um, it's just kind of helped me look at it in a different way that I've wouldn't have considered at first until I was like pushed there. <laughs> I think what you've done is extremely courageous and very brave. Um, like you said, I guess this pandemic has given you a lot more time to get into and uncover some wounds that you didn't, I guess, didn't really know existed. So um, I guess, are you proud of yourself for doing that because I think that it's a very courageous and act and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people um, wouldn't have that courage to do so so yeah uh, I, I appreciate that it's something that always surprises me when people describe uh, like my behavior like that or or even my own writing or processing is as courageous because for me it's not something that I walk into thinking, okay, I have to be brave and I have to do this thing. It's, it's more like I have to do this because this is my way of living with myself. There's no way I can live with myself if I don't. 
Um, so I appreciate that first off. Um, I even forgot the question. Oh my God. <laughs> Sorry. Do you mind repeating that last little bit? <laughs> I guess like, my question is, do you, are you proud of yourself for what like the realizations that you have come up with during the pandemic and like have you grown as a person because of it okay um I don't know if I'd say I'm proud of myself I know a lot of like people that I've been with like my partner for example my friends like they've all expressed like these are big strides that I'm making that they're proud of me I'm very reluctant to say that I'm proud of myself and I don't mean that in a self-deprecating or like beating myself with a stick kind of way um I just think I'm taking steps that are needed for me to be able to heal and be able to grow and I think I have a lot more work to do um I'm definitely like I'm not pushing aside the work that I've done but um it's hard to admit that you're you're proud of yourself for something that you you know you feel like you've been stuck on for a while, but you, you still feel like you should be doing more or you still feel like you have more to do. Um, so one thing I've noticed through the pandemic, um, not even just like within the past couple of months, but like from the very beginning, it's been a very noticeable change. So both in like the decline and um, like into like, you know, having more flashbacks and, and, you know, my depression and my OCD um, and my PTSD kind of getting the better of me to kind of starting to crawl out of it. It's both a mental difference. Like you, you feel different waking up in the morning, but you kind of, you notice the way you're walking in your own apartment when no one is around is different. Like I'm someone that like, if, if you're ever on Western campus and you see someone in like velvet and hair down past their ass and they're strutting, like it's a runway, even though they're just walking up the hill, that's me. <laughs> um, but you know, after being in isolation and having my mental illness kick the shit out of me, um, you kind of stop walking around like that. And it became like just everything, like from, you know, the way you're filling the time in your day to the way you're behaving when no one's watching like that, it changes so, so much. And you can notice it when things are getting worse and you can notice it when things are getting better. And like, I've definitely noticed at least within the past month, which has been like kind of when I'm getting back on my feet. And maybe that's because it's, you know, it's September. I kind of consider fall my season, you know, school's back. So I'm reading again, which is always good for my mental health. Um, but the way I'm walking is back to normal. Uh, I'm eating more, which is normal. and. Yeah, it's kind of just been like a dip from the normal, getting back to the normal, and then coming out a little bit higher than the normal. And while that may not necessarily seem like a lot of change to someone from the outside who hasn't seen me in six months, maybe they just noticed like, okay, either I've gained a little weight or, um, you know, maybe I'm walking with a little bit more of a bounce in my step. It's something that I've kind of become hyper aware of and fixated on as, you know, it changes as the months go by it's not something you kind of look at to figure out how um, you don't like monitor yourself to see how you've changed, but you can't really help but notice when it affects every little thing, if that makes any sense. I think uh, it was great having you, Danielle. Uh, I think now we'd uh, just like to wrap up this, uh, this episode by just inviting you to present one of your pieces for us.
Sure. He loves me in pink, dresses me up in a frilly fragment of a thing, calls me his, little one, baby girl, oh for sake, why can't I let him play the dom just once? The taste of me sliding down his throat, quick as Pepto, sweet as candy floss. He'll make me moldable as bubble gum around his thick fingers. I was young when I saw the inside of a body for the first time, its meaty pink ropes tangling into thick knots, the same way his throat twists, pillowy lips pursed in a smirk as he watches my pale flesh bloom. Like the last man to love me, he said he adored me for my lovely little mind. I don't know about him, but I've only seen a brain twice. First in a jar, second outside of Scotiabank, where an old lady got caught in a hit and run, spewing bits of warm, wet gray into slush. It was nothing special, but I couldn't look away. Thought it wise to soak up what I would look like when my skull finally splits across the counter. Thank you so much for that, Danielle. Um, it was very powerful. And I'm sure that you have inspired a lot of other people to really talk about this, have challenging, difficult conversations. So thank you so much for that. We loved having you on our podcast. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. Um, Danielle's links will be um, in the description box. So please go check her out. She is amazing. Um, and so, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you guys later.